So as I said earlier, we are in the uh, fall festivals. These are memorials to the Messiah. These are appointed holy days. These are the holy days of our Father in heaven. These are the days we keep in honor of Yeshua the Messiah. It's a memorial to him. Just like we have memorials today, the memorial to 9-11, right? We remember that. We enter into that. It informs us. It has purpose and meaning. God's holy days are about his son, the Messiah. He expects his people to step into those appointed times, into those memorials, to exalt and honor his son, knowing that when the son is lifted up, everyone comes to faith. Everyone responds. All men will come in relationship to the son of God in faith towards the father. So these days are everything. They're important to us. They're vital for us. So on the heels of Yom Kippur, we're going to move into tabernacles. So I'll be teaching on that as well. I want to remind us, this is when we celebrate the birth of Messiah during tabernacles, when he came to tabernacle among us. When he was born, he pitched a human tent and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. John places the birth of Jesus within the theological construct of tabernacles and sees that in Jesus's birth, tabernacles has its initial or inaugural fulfillment. So get out your nativity scenes, get your, your sukkah, your little tabernacles built and decorated and get ready for a great week of celebration and fellowship with each other. So that's going to be here so quick. All right, so today I'm going to talk about Yom Kippur. In fact, I've entitled this Satan, Azazel, and Yom Kippur, right? I mean, that is quite the deal. I thought, what am I doing? One of the most intriguing things about Yom Kippur is the mystery surrounding the two goats. One is for the Lord and the other is for Azazel. So what or who is Azazel? And how does Azazel factor into the Day of Atonement? How is all of this fulfilled in Yeshua, the Messiah? And most importantly, how does it relate to me and my family? We'll begin to explore this in this teaching today. Let me start by saying that Chabad.org, which probably is the biggest outlet for Orthodox Judaism around the globe, this is what they state concerning Yom Kippur, Orthodox Jews. Quote, Yom, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year, the day on which we are closest to God and to the quintessence of our souls. It is the day of atonement. For on this day, he will forgive you to purify you, that you be cleansed from all of your sins before God. A quote, of course, from Leviticus 16 and verse 30. Holiest day of the year, the day of atonement. We agree with that. We say amen to that. But how will he accomplish this atonement and cleansing? Seeing that it requires the tabernacle or the temple, a priesthood, and animal sacrifices. 
how will he do this in light of the fact that there is no temple? In fact, the first temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. and later rebuilt some 66, 67 years later. So Israel was without a temple for, for six decades plus. That was quite troubling for the people of Israel because during that time there was no priesthood in effect, no temple, no sacrifice, no blood atonement for their sins. It was reconstructed, reinstituted, and then later the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And it was not rebuilt 66 years later. It wasn't rebuilt 600 years later. In fact, it's been approximately 2,000 years and the temple still has not been rebuilt. 2,000 years. What hope, if any, is there that we have an atonement for our sins? The answer is in the types and shadows of this day and its rituals. Either it is fulfilled in Yeshua, the Messiah, or we have no hope of atonement today. There's no temple, there's no priesthood, there's no animal sacrifice. So how will God accomplish this? I propose that Yom Kippur lives on and has an inaugural fulfillment in Yeshua's death on the cross. The consummate fulfillment will be when Messiah returns to judge the living and the dead. So how does God accomplish atoning for our sins today and cleansing us from our sins today? Keep in mind that forgiveness and cleansing are based on a judicial death of an innocent soul as the payment of the debt due to satisfy justice, thus bringing healing, peace, and restoration in our lives and the world that we live in. Now that's a mouthful. Suffice it to say, there is no atonement without a judicial death to pay the payment that we owe. There has to be something in place in order to have atonement. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth it shall die. Sin is destructive to everything around it. It's, it hurts our, our lives, ourselves. It hurts others and the world we live in. And it incurs a debt, a debt that we owe, a debt of death that we're required to pay in order for justice to be met. Death is that debt. And God, he's a righteous king. And he's a just judge. And justice will be met, which means we're all going to die. We're all condemned to death because we are sinners by nature. He will judge sinful human beings. He will judge this sinful world. But his mercy triumphs over judgment. God is a God of love. It breaks his heart that we would be condemned and lose our lives. So in his mercy, he makes a righteous way 
for all of us to be acquitted and justified while at the same time meeting the demands of justice in the universe that he's created. Now that way is called substitutionary atonement. Slide 27. Thank you. Substitutionary atonement. What do we mean by that? What's implied in this phrase, substitutionary atonement, is the idea that there's a substitution given so that atonement can be made. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11 spells that out for us. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. He says, I'm going to give you the animals, certain animals, as a sacrifice. Their lives poured out on your behalf to pay the debt you owe. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God says, I'm going to allow you to give another soul in your place so you can go on living. That's mercy to us, but not to the animals sacrificed on our behalf. They pay our debt. Those animals have living souls. Their soul is given on our behalf so that you and I can be forgiven and continue on living. This is the idea of a substitutionary atonement. The animal is a substitute for you, for me. And through that animal's death, we are atoned for. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Life for life. The animal's life is given on your behalf so that you can go on living. This is substitutionary atonement. And only an innocent life can atone for a guilty one. Now, I want to share with you this concept because it's so important for us to understand that in the sacrificial system, in the temple, in the signs, in the, in the, in the uh, um, types and shadows, we have the revelation of how God's going to atone for our sins. So in the ancient days when you sinned and you were required to bring in an animal for the sacrifice, you would meet the priest in the temple. You would lay your hands on the head of that lamb or goat and you would confess your sins. Now let me ask you the question. What does confession and laying on of hands have to do with atonement? How does that work? What's taking place? What are we to learn from that? See, what God is communicating to his people is this. You're to take your sins and you're to transfer them onto that animal. Through your confession and laying out of hands, those sins move from you into the animal. And then you're required to take the animal's life. And the priest catches the blood from the slain animal and takes the blood in to the altar. 
And that life that was given makes atonement for your and my sin. Substitutionary atonement. Through confession and the laying on of hands, atonement is made through the death of that substitute. So the tabernacle, the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, and they were temporary. Temporary types and shadows to prepare us for what they represented. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the Torah, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come, it only has a shadow, a picture, a representation of the genuine, real things that are coming, right? And not the very form of things can never, by the same sacrifices which they continually, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. What do we learn from this? What is the writer of Hebrews telling us? He's saying that the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices are destined to become obsolete. They're dest- they have, a, they have a, a period of time that, that we use them, employ them, but they are not permanent. They're temporary. Even Moses tells us that. In Exodus, Moses tells us that what he made was a copy of what he saw in the heavenlies. He went up on the mountain, received revelation from, from God, saw into the heavenlies, and he came down and God says, make a copy of what you've seen. That's the tabernacle. The priesthood, the sacrifices, those were all temporary types and shadows to teach us about the genuine temple of God, the genuine dwelling presence of God, and how atonement would be accomplished. This tells us that they are temporary and will be done away with in our future. And now for 2,000 years, there's been no temple And the question is, is why would God allow that? Why did God allow the destruction of his own temple? Think about that for a moment. If Yeshua is the fulfillment of Yom Kippur, then the temple would have to give way so that he would be seen as the genuine reality, the dwelling presence of God in human flesh and blood. His death and his resurrection was in fact the inaugural fulfillment of Yom Kippur that we would put our trust in him and have an atonement for our sins, an atonement that is real and genuine because what we were experiencing under the temple system was just a type and shadow that couldn't do anything for us other than point us to the genuine article. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2. Otherwise... They would, they, uh, they not, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So in Galatians, we're told that the law was added because of sin. We see that in, in, a, in a way that's negative. We're, 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 we're taught over 2,000 years of lawlessness that that is a bad thing, that the law was added, and that was bad, you know, that God would add the law, horrible, you know. We need to be redeemed from the curse of the law. We think the law is the curse. 
Now, the law is talking about the curse that comes through sin and shame. The law was added so that we would understand sin and we would understand how to make an atonement for that. It's the law that reveals the Messiah and the atonement of God. We understand by the law, sin and shame, justice and mercy, condemnation, punishment, redemption and salvation. These things were necessary in bringing us into this great atonement. Everyone needs atonement. Without it, you'll pay for your own sins through your own suffering and death in the lake of fire when God removes all of those who insisted on staying in their own narcissistic ways. God will judge and remove wickedness. Through his love, he's offered an atonement for everyone, whosoever will. Those that end up in the lake of fire are there because they chose that destiny. Oh, God would never send. They sent themselves. They they made a determination that that would be their fate. God made everything possible for them to be redeemed and saved. That was his heart. So in their obstinate, narcissistic unrepentance, they will make an atonement for their own sins in the lake of fire, and it will not produce any redemption, but rather their elimination from the new and second creation, which will be perfect and will never have sin ever again as a part of it. So, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That tells us that these were copies, these were shadows, these were object lessons for us. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. That was only to point us to the one that could take away our sins through his blood, right? Think about that. The life of the animal was mortal. It could only cover sin. It couldn't remove it, and only for a short period of time because it's mortal. It has a shelf life. It was only designed to point us to the one who could redeem us as a substitution, a substitutionary death. That's so important for us to understand. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away our sins, which means we don't need a temple. We don't need the Levitical priesthood. We don't need the sacrifices again. Because in Messiah, all of that is fulfilled. If people are waiting for a temple, you're out of luck. And what what about what about the hundreds of millions that have lived in the last two thousand years hoping for a temple? What hope is that? Why hope for the the type in the shadow? when you can have the thing that casts the shadow, the genuine article. Yet all of this was always about Messiah. It was always pointing us forward to the Messiah. That's why Yom Kippur is a memorial to Yeshua, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 10.5 
Therefore, when he comes into the world, speaking of the Messiah, therefore, when Messiah comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The Messiah comes through an incarnation, becomes a human being for one purpose. He comes to die. He came and took on human flesh and blood so that the sin of the world could be placed on him. Just like we place our sins on the animals through confession and the laying on of hands, the Father laid the sin of the world on his Son. Every sin, past, present, and future, laid on the Son, was in the Son. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He became sin. The totality of sin was in him. And he was tormented with that. And then the Father judged that sin in human flesh and blood. The wrath of God was poured out on him. He experienced the wrath of God against sinful humanity in his body. He was lit up with pain and misery as he was making an atonement for our sin. The substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly. It was in his righteous life poured out that we would have forgiveness. And because he's God, the very son of God, sharing in the Godhead fully with the Father, what that meant was the life that coursed in his blood was eternal life. So that that life poured out would not only be a covering, it can actually remove your sins as far as the east is from the west forever. Because this life is eternal life, it can make an eternal redemption, atonement for us. And this is what the sacrifice, the priesthood in the temple was trying to teach us all along. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Verse 7, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. This is the glory of Jesus. This is his honor and his glory. He said, I have come to do your will, to be the atoning sacrifice for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but live forever. This is the glory of Jesus. Jesus is God's plan and gift of atonement for us to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Let's take a look at the types and shadows in Leviticus 16. See what we can learn from that. Keep in mind that everything we have in the festivals is a revelation of who Jesus is and what he would accomplish 
in this great plan of redemption. So Leviticus 16, this is the chapter on Yom Kippur. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of, I just got to say this too. Being a follower of Jesus demands that we observe the memorials. He is God, not we ourselves. You know, it's his appointment book. We're, we're his followers. These are his memorials. If you love Jesus, observe the memorials. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near before the Lord and died, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. God is holy, majestic. He says, you shall not come into my presence with your sin and shame. If you do, you will die. And so he gave us the tabernacle, the pattern of what Moses saw in the heavenlies and God's very dwelling presence. And God says, make a, a copy of that, an earthly rendition of that, representation of that. And show my people where I dwell in the Holy of Holies, the third and final compartment of the tabernacle. And it's in that place that we have what's called the mercy seat that's put over the container that holds the commandments of God, the very covenant that he made with his people. And on that mercy seat are the two cherubim, the angelic representations of heaven. And God says, I'm going to come. That's where I'm going to sit. That's my throne. And that's where I'm going to meet with you. And only one person can come into my presence. Just one. And he can only do that once a year. And that's only through the ritual of a blood sacrifice. Or I'll kill him. Because I'm holy. But it's there in that place that your representative, the one that represents all of you, is going to receive from me what I have for you. And then he's going to give that to you. The mercy seat. Think about that. The mercy seat. The place of mercy. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. God says, I do not dwell in the place of judgment. I dwell in the place of mercy. But we have to understand how that mercy works because it's not in any way undermining justice. Justice shall be met. But God has a way to use mercy in a way that preempts that judgment coming into our lives through a substitutionary atonement. So in Exodus 25, I just want to read this. It says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold and, and then uh, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim of one piece, with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have wings spread out upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you, the very covenant uh, that he made with his people. Exodus 25, 22. Then there I will meet with you, 
from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. He shall come in with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen as a sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water, water and then put them on. He shall take them from the congregation of the people of Israel, two goats, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall then offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So Aaron's going to go through a mikvah and then he's going to put on holy garments and then he's going to get some sacrificial animals and before he goes into the Holy of Holies, the animals are going to be sacrificed. And he's going to take the blood in and later says he takes the blood in and he's to sprinkle it on the mercy seat on the east side, on the front, on top of it the blood of these animals. And it's the life that's in the blood that's given as an atonement for the people of Israel and for Aaron so that Aaron can go into the presence of God. Aaron gets to go into the presence of God through that atoning sacrifice. In that atonement, he's made righteous. Now this righteous one can meet with the righteous king of heaven and receive from him instructions for Israel. This is amazing in every way. It really helps us to understand what Jesus is doing for us, has done for us, and is doing for us in the heavenly temple today. He's interceding for us today before the Father. Leviticus 6, 8. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel goes on to say, and Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Two male goats, one is for Yahweh, it's a sin offering. The other one is for Azazel. Hmm. Who is this Azazel, right? And that goat is the one that makes atonement for Israel and then removes the sin of Israel and the defilement of Israel to a dwelling place in the wilderness, in the desert. There's a place in the desert where this Azazel lives. It's his dwelling place. And this goat is going to take all those sins and transport them to the dwelling place of Azazel. I want to read from the JPS Torah commentary. Leviticus 16 and verse 8 states this concerning Azazel. Quote, Azazel in later myth was the name given to the demonic ruler of the wilderness. See, the wilderness 
was the Hebrew symbol of a wasteland of sin and destruction. It is the dwelling place of the disembodied spirits of the wicked dead. The idea that evolved down through the literature, down through the revelation given by God to the people of Israel, made it clear that sin is a wasteland, and therefore it's depicted as the wilderness. In fact, the dwelling place of the evil one on earth is in fact the desert. That's where he dwells. And the wicked dead are within that geographical location in the spirit realm. The spirit realm overlaps and intersects with our world. And there's an intersection there in that place of Azazel where the disembodied spirits of the dead reside. That is the realm of the dead, the underworld, if you will. And it's in this underworld that Azazel reigns as king of the dead. So this is found in the Jewish book of Enoch, which was written much later. Azazel corresponds directly to one of the fallen sons of God in Genesis 6. Isn't that interesting? Enoch tells us that Azazel is one of those fallen angels. According to the first book of Enoch, chapters 6 through 13, Azazel was originally one of the sons of God who came down from heaven and cohabitated with women. And of course, these fallen ones produced the Nephilim. And the departed spirits of the Nephilim, when the Nephilim died, their departed spirits correspond to what the apostolic scriptures call demons. That angelology, demonology, if you will, is formed in the second temple period and primarily in the book of Enoch. And it's from that literature that the apostolic writers further develop angelology and demonology. So there's a lot here in this Yom Kippur passage that we have to understand if we're to understand the nature of sin and shame and redemption. Again, according to the JPS Torah commentary, this is in the excursus, Azazel was, quote, the archangel who was given jurisdiction over sorcery, acts of war, and harlotry, all exemplifications of evil. He became chief of the fallen ones. He became the leader of the fallen ones. This becomes the number one most wicked spirit in the realm of the spirits. He is the king of the fallen angels, the demonic realm of the underworld. Note well that this resembles Satan, the figure that we find developed in the New Testament scriptures. It goes on to say, being cast into the wilderness by the archangel Raphael, Azazel was confined under jagged rocks to live there in darkness until judgment day. The realm of the dead where he rules and reigns is actually the realm of darkness, the underworld, where the disembodied spirits of wicked people are, are, 
are contained, are brought together. He is the Lord of the dead. He holds the keys of death. Again, note well the similarities between Azazel and Satan. They connect and overlap. It goes on to say, in this manner, he came to rule the wilderness. So the goat for Azazel is to be taken to the realm of Azazel, which is the wilderness. This is where this all comes together. The wilderness was viewed in ancient times as a place of evil and darkness. And Azazel is the ruler of that darkness, the ruler of the underworld. He's the ruler of Hades or hell in our vernacular. Remember what Jesus said concerning this realm? He said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail. Yeah, where was he when he said that? He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, he was up in, in, in Galilee with his disciples. He was standing on the base of the Mount of Hermon. It's very, it's the whole, the whole area is just one big bedrock for that mountain. And it's there in that place that he says, upon this rock, probably the rock bed he's standing on, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. That location is in fact the location of Azazel. This is where the gates of hell are, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the place in, in Enoch where the fallen ones come down onto Mount Hermon and enter in through a portal to our world and bring about the sin and the corruption that takes humanity and alienates them from God. And it's in that very place that Yeshua says, here I am, bring it on. So in summary, the goat for Azazel. And we'll look at this more on, on Yom Kippur, but all of the sins of Israel will be imparted and imputed to this second goat. When you read down through Leviticus 16, they're going to confess their sin, and all the sin is going to be offered in and through the sin offering and then placed upon the second goat for Azazel. And it's this second goat, the goat for Azazel, the goat for Satan, if you will. This goat's going to transport the sin of the world to his realm. All of the sin that's being atoned for, it's, it's going to be taken away. It says, it, what, what does it say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, war, uh, uh, the sin of the world. You see, the blood of bulls and goats can't take it away. But Jesus, the Son of God, can. Because in Jesus, not only we have the atonement of God, he's also the one that takes away the sin of the world. Where is he taking it? See, if you understand Yom Kippur, he's taking it somewhere. He's taking it to the realm of Azazel, to the realm of Satan, where it all began. Like Amazon. Ding dong, you know. Your package is here. Hello, anybody home? Can you imagine that? 
He takes the sin of the world to the place where sin originated, to the realm of Azazel, to the realm of Satan. And then he holds Satan and his fallen ones accountable for all of our sins. Is that not the mercy and justice of God? Is that not a beautiful atonement? That is like, that is like amazing in every way. So I'm going to give you a couple passages in Revelation as we close. Revelation 20, 7 through 10. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That's code for Jerusalem. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. What Satan started, he will have to endure in the finishing of human history. What he brought at our beginning will be placed on him in the end. And God will redeem whosoever will. And that atonement made by his son will not only forgive us of our sins, will not only cleanse us from our sins, but our sins are going to be removed from us. As far as the east is from the west, they will be taken away from us and placed in the dwelling of Azazel, where he and his fallen ones are then captured and cast into the lake of fire and tormented for what they introduced into God's creation. Yom Kippur. That's what this day is all about. It's a memorial to Yeshua's triumph over the evil one. It's a memorial to him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Guess who's the one that seizes him? It's Yeshua and his army of heaven that seizes this one and throws him into the lake of fire. 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus came and took a body, became one of us, just so he could die and pay the debt that we owe. He suffered humiliation, mocked, spit upon, flogged, tortured, and then an excruciating, painful, slow death on the cross to make an atonement for our sins so that we could be forgiven 
cleansed and redeemed. And you know part of that glory is? That he's become king of kings and lord of lords. And that there's a payback that's coming. And he's going to take that evil one and pay him back for everything that he did and caused, including Messiah's own suffering and death. It's going to be a terrible day for the wicked one and those who followed him. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he too was thrown into the lake of fire. So Yom Kippur is a memorial to God's promise to forgive us, atone for us, and remove our, remove our sins from us. And he has done that in Yeshua the Messiah. So we'll memorialize that in a couple days. We will honor Jesus in that. We'll remind ourselves of his great atonement and we'll rejoice in the future when he comes to judge the living and the dead. What a day that's going to be. What an amazing day that's going to be. And until then, we will live faithful to our king and to his ways. Hallelujah. All right. Shabbat shalom.